Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we're going to discuss um, something that has been kind of an ongoing debate over the last year, which is this push to get people who have been uh, working from home over the last couple of years owing to the pandemic back into the office. I don't think this is the first time we've talked about this push specifically. As I said, this has been a long process because as it turns out, a lot of workers rather like being able to work from home. They like that they don't have to commute every day. And yet, nevertheless, this push from bosses has persisted and continues. And we're going to talk about it for the next hour or so. I I guess... uh, to pose the question to the two of you, where do we start with this discussion? What's driving this? What's the issue here? There's two major things. One, we've already covered to some, I mean, not just on this topic, but on other issues, which is that more than anything, right? If you're a manager, if you're any kind of a boss, what you want more than anything is the chance to like control your employees and no amount of surveillance. First of all, surveillance software is expensive. Let's start with that. That's a problem. It's not going to save you money to install uh, keystroke trackers and stuff like that on on people's home computers or the laptops that you let them take home. By the way, I don't know if you've heard, Very in a, in a particularly sinister turn, this is happening even in office settings now. I heard recently that in one lab, I forget what Midwestern universities it might be northwestern there which is a misnomer because it's in the midwest but whatever they're putting key they're putting eye trackers eye tracking software stuff that's meant for gamers to like improve their reflexes they're putting that on lab computers so they can track productivity from graduate students of course right after they they decided that they wanted to unionize so you know that's that's the level of hell we're we're living in now not even working at the workplace will save you. But no amount of that kind of software is going to make bosses feel good because, number one, they don't know how to use the software, so they're interpreting reports made by a bunch of people they consider nerds, and they don't know what to do with that. They would much rather be able to just go up to your shoulder and read your computer screen and do all of their little power moves like walk around without knocking or being respectful to anybody and just strut their stuff and throw their weight around and be passive aggressive. They would love to do that. That's prong one. Prong two is that office buildings being vacant eventually leads to real estate interests who own those buildings not making any money. And if you're somebody like New York State Governor Kathy Hochul, who has a bunch of developer money in her campaign accounts, um, those are your friends, and those are the people you need to keep happy. So people need to go back to the office so you can get reelected and, I don't know, like indulge your wine habit on camera some more. 
what are governors for? Right. And let's not forget that a uh, friend of the show, Adam Newman, still um, pushes some WeWork stuff every once in a while. So you got to get those rentable, toxic office places up and running again. That's that's not that's not real estate. That's a tech company. They're not landlords, even though all they do is own spaces that they rent out to other people, which is exactly what landlords do. They're a tech company. Okay. You're right. My bad. I apologize. Sorry, friend of the show, Adam Newman. Genius, Adam Newman. Yes. Genius. Yes. Yes, that's right. More Genius than just a year. friend. <laughs> I, I think the thing that's sort of tricky with this discussion is that on a lot of um, episodes, it's very easy to draw the distinction between capital's interests and labor's interests. And often, I mean, this is not exclusive to this issue, but on this issue in particular, there's been a lot of um, conflation of the two and a lot of effort made to mix the two together and say that actually this push is to workers' benefit. This push is, you know, you're going to enjoy having time to decompress on your commute home again. You're going to enjoy having birthday parties at the office again. You need that camaraderie that can only be formed in person. Noted site of decompression, the commute home. Yeah. And that isn't to say that uh, working from home has been universally good. And I, I think our plan at least is to discuss in the second segment, the ways in which, you know, there are issues with it, but we had a discussion before the episode as to like what our line on this is going to be, what, you know, how we're going to come down, you know, what we're trying to say here. And I, I think what we're trying to say is that while there are issues with work from home, certainly having the option available is ultimately something that is good for workers because it affords them flexibility in how they live their lives. It gives them, time back out of the day that otherwise would have been spent sitting in traffic or for very lucky members of the working class, you know, on a train at least. Um, and this push to get people back into the office, as Lou, you noted, uh, Noah, you noted as well. It's not coming from a pro worker place. It is coming from people who have interests in, you know, central business district real estate in American cities. Cursed phrase. Yeah. Um, and doing some of the like research before this episode, I the numbers I was coming across were like in cities like New York and DC and Boston, like it's something like a quarter to a third of workers are still working from home, working remotely. And as such, like that's a pretty sizable chunk of the population, even if in other places, you know, I, I didn't see any statistics on Rochester, for example, or, and certainly in other industries, that number is a lot smaller. There are certainly places where it feels like, oh, everybody's back in the office. The pandemic is over. The president said so. We're back to normal. But nevertheless, there is this sizable chunk of the population that's managed to preserve the luxury of working from home. Um, and there are efforts to say that, oh, those are the bad people because, you know, they don't have to work with their hands. But I think it's worth saying, well, no, those are workers too. It's okay. 
Yeah, I, like I can't work from home. The only time I did work from home was during the actual shutdown phase of the f- pandemic. Um, and that was pretty nice. I'm not going to lie. That that was the greatest thing ever. Uh, but the reality of my job is, is that I have to be in person in order for it to function. Like I have to be in a physical location. And I know people who do work entirely from home and they have kids and they really enjoy it. In fact, that's something they search for when they're looking for work is what can I do from home so they have the flexibility to deal with my life as it happens. So while I am definitely envious of them, uh, I also don't think that it's a good idea to take away that freedom unless there is a really strong and compelling reason for it, which thus far I haven't seen any reason why why they should be made to go into an office, to be honest. Like companies like, uh, I don't know, all of them, uh, except for a handful, they want people to go in the office so that, I don't know, they have people to lord over. I think Noah said before that one of the compelling reasons why a boss might want people in the office is so that they can tell them in person what to do and that they have more feeling of power over them. That to me is the most compelling reason why a business would want their workers to be in person as opposed to through an email, just for that visceral reaction of telling somebody what to do. Yeah. I I also only got to work from home uh, the first few months of the pandemic and then we were put back in schools in, well, sorry, I went to go back to work in a school basically August, September 2020. So you'll note that that's several months before vaccines were available. Um, Noah, you work in a school? Yeah. So the point is, a few months before vaccines were available, we were basically tossed in there with minimal mitigation, no improvement to ventilations, nothing. And while most teachers were, uh, you know, around the country were remote, my particular workplace, we sort of distinguished ourselves on purpose as a marketing strategy by being open at that point. Um, and that was that was the the reason we were told we'd go back because otherwise we couldn't keep the lights on. Now, we did find out later that we had paycheck protection money and that that paycheck protection money was sitting in a bank account doing nothing. So congratulations to my employer who apparently committed paycheck protection fraud. We also had a ton of cases among both students and faculty and actually an outsized impact on the faculty because many of us are older or had other kind of comorbidities or or pre-existing conditions. As far as my bosses were concerned, the big reason to be back in person was that they could herd us into meeting spaces, that they could tell us what to do, and that they could gleefully guilt us into coming into the building, even though they knew that many of us felt horrendously unsafe. I mean, I work with people who are like married to infectious disease specialists and stuff like that. And we were told in no small, in in just so many words that we might face a pay cut if we tried to work remotely, Um, which I was told might actually be a violation of the ADA, but we're not unionized. So everything is legal when you don't have a union. And 
so I, all of this is somewhat of a long walk because the thing is, the meme in those days and holding on now is that teachers never wanted to go back to schools, that they didn't want to teach in person, that they would have taught remotely this whole time if it would be allowed. And the response to that was, well, no, of course we want to be in person. And I found it very difficult to straddle both sides of that because I very much did not want to work in person, at least not before I was vaccinated. And even after that, the cases continue rising. So I didn't particularly want to be in person because I wasn't safe. Now, two years on, I feel marginally more protected. I'm more okay with being back in the classroom. Not that I have a choice anyway, but it's, it's less of a problem. But for the longest time, I really hated the preemptive defense of, well, of course we want to be back in person. Everybody wants to be back in the classroom. No, I don't. I'm spending time with a bunch of people who don't think this is a big deal and who think if I get sick, you know, it's just going to be a cold instead of weeks of lingering symptoms and so on. And I know that I'm not the only person in that position. I have a job that really can't be done at least not the way that we structure education. It cannot be done over the computer. I would argue it shouldn't be done over the computer, but I've done remote education before as a student. They, there was an alternative vision there that could have been exploited. There, there was a way to make that work. And we on purpose didn't do it because that might've created the idea that, hey, you don't actually need to have 20, 30 kids in a classroom with one teacher, you know, trying their best essentially to get through a bunch of high stakes testing and whatnot. Ultimately, the real reason I think that that all of this work from home stuff went away, uh, or it, they're trying to make it go away, is that it creates the possibility of an alternative. And that's really what they can't have. Uh, for my part, just to round out this discussion, I also have worked in person throughout the pandemic, first at a nursing home, which was horrifying in a number of ways for obvious reasons, but also my last couple of jobs now here in New York City have been office jobs that are in person. Uh, at my current job, though, there are some people who work for the company remotely and who I interact with, you know, through various virtual tools and whatnot. So, so I'm somebody who works on a keyboard, as we discussed. I don't really work with my hands, but nevertheless, I'm doing so at a physical office. Just to give some numbers beyond our own anecdotal experiences here, um, I'm going to read here from a um, an article in The Star, which I believe is just aggregating this piece from uh, Bloomberg. Um, it's, a, it's from back in September of this year, uh, you know, citing a, a survey that was done about workers who were working from home. I'm going to quote from the article. On average, people surveyed by the research team currently work about 1.5 days from home each week. Uh, something we haven't discussed so far on this episode is that there is a lot of middle ground between in the office every day and working from home every day. You know, people have found various um, hybrid options that work for them or at least they're tolerating. Employees in countries where commutes are typically longer tend to place more value on time working from home, which I think makes sense. You know, if you're spending more time commuting, then that's more time you're saving by working from home. Uh, 
About one third of U.S. workers would quit or start looking for another job if told to return to the workplace five days a week, higher than the global average, according to the study. That's a pretty significant chunk of people who, you know, it's not just that they like working from home. They are willing to quit in order to preserve that. It's something they feel strongly about. I think anecdotally, we... I, I don't know about you. I, I definitely know a number of people who, the moment that they were told they might have to go back to the office, started looking into other possibilities. I know that over the last couple of years, even uh, even knowing that it might put my public service loan forgiveness at risk, I tried looking around for remote jobs out of, again, that that sense of, of, of wanting a little bit more safety or, or minimizing contact time with other people. It's understandable why. I mean... That's the, for many of us, that was the only safe place, especially in the last couple of years when, as you mentioned, everyone from Dr. Fauci on down told us that the pandemic was over. You can go back to work. You don't have to wear a mask. You can, you know, do whatever, as long as it makes somebody else money. That's the important bit. Don't have family gatherings. Don't have anything that that's important to you as a person, but like go shopping, go to, you know, Go to massive super spreader events, concerts, and things like that. Do that because somebody gets rich off of that. But you know the the stuff that matters to continue allowing you to be a person that needs to stop. You can't do that. But the things that people are working from home for, I, I, I think, is worth the discussion because uh, just to give the example of the people in my office, those are people who are parents. You know, they have children in the home. Working from home allows them to better strike a balance between those two very important tasks. Um, uh, my roommate works from home one day a week because that's the day he goes to therapy. And without that, like his commute time, it just won't be doable. Um, like being able to work from home frees up so much that, yeah, it, it's no wonder that a lot of people are strongly in favor of it. Yeah, it, it frees up. You know, the, the time you're commuting, which is for so many of us in this country, a really absurd amount of time that you're spent not being paid or being able to do anything meaningful in in your personal life uh, just to go to work. That's that's an absurd amount of time. So so freeing up that stress and that time sink is huge. And I think part of it, the the freedom from work going into the office is just the idea that I think the attitude we have about work in general is that it it's something compulsory that we have to do. And being actually made to go to a location increases that mindset or that, that um, unwillingness for the work. And, and so psychologically, we can do a lot more from work if we don't feel like we're being forced to work, you know? And so I think for a lot of people who can work from home, that's part of it because the people who can work from home are by and large white collar workers. So they're people who are, are doing spreadsheets at home or like Google analysis or, or, you know, just emailing as a job, which is something that some people do for jobs. That ability, it doesn't feel like work if you, you're not tied to a location. And we do know that psychologically, one of the things that helps people think of their job as a 
quote unquote good job is autonomy. And being allowed to work from home is a sign of trust. One, which is why one of the first things they had to do during the pandemic was make it so they knew exactly what you were typing and what software you had opened and all of that stuff at all times, because God forbid you, you know, they, they make that trust too obvious, but I think it really matters, especially if you're in the class of worker that whose job can theoretically be done from home. It is a real gesture. To have someone say, no, we don't need you to come into the office. We trust that you will, pardon me, that you will get this work done. And essentially, we're not going to pick a fight with you unless we notice that you're not doing it right. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing they, they push on us is good pedagogy. Uh, there's no reason why it can't be any different in the workplace, especially when American education is basically set up to get you used to working for a living. So it it's again it it's a vision of something that could be better and isn't essentially because we're unnecessarily beholding ourselves to the status quo which to be fair is something that Americans more than I think other nationalities love to do is to be beholden to really dumb ideas just for the sake of doing that. Maybe the Brits are the only other people who are that steadfastly <laughs> dedicated to. Haven't they been book. through? They just lost the Queen. Haven't they been through enough? Well, the English, the other, the other people, different stuff, but <laughs> they're free. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. I, I think it's worth discussing the role that commuting plays in all of this because. Uh, for most Americans, it's something that happens by car. It's something that I never enjoyed driving, so I assume some people do. But even if you do like driving, you're not thinking about sitting in traffic. You're thinking about being on the road with nobody else on the road, really. you you don't. The fewer cars out there, the better, because that's less risk. That's fewer other people you have to deal with. Uh, Noah, are you going to? Yeah. Uh, because I have taken my first solo road trips during the pandemic, during the last couple of years. And I'm going to tell you right now, a million times, I would prefer to drive five hours on the highway with a bunch of other people to go do something other than my job than the 17 minutes it takes me to get there. Because they are completely different mindsets. Especially now that uh, school districts in Rochester for a very long time have uh, prided themselves on never having a snow day if they can help it. And that has gone away. My boss a couple years ago said, we're going to have one snow day this year. He committed to that and then didn't do it and then got mad when people asked him about it. That that was a famous little moment that year. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're all so good at keeping promises here. But... When you've when you've had to drive down a side street that has been, and I just listened to this episode recently because I'm catching up on our old ones, that was completely unplowed, just covered in like several inches of densely packed snow with nothing but tire tracks. When you've done that, and then you have to go into a school and act like a human being, like a responsibly emotional adult in front of a bunch of teenagers... I mean, that is 
that is the width of human, the breadth of human experience right there. I just love that this is Noah's greatest hits uh, episode. Yeah, it's just nailing Teaches, everything. snow plows, <laughs> everything sucks, yeah. Just <laughs> nothing but net the whole way down. <laughs> just draining threes. I will say. Yeah, no, it, it, it sucks because you're you're essentially in a hurry, not because you're trying to, not because you want to be, not because you want to get to a place by a certain time for your own reasons, but because you don't want to get yelled at. And that creates a completely different mindset versus everybody else on the road. Because your only other choice is to try and be as early as possible. And then you're that person who is getting to work as early as possible so as not to be late. That's not helpful for your mental health either. So there, there's basically no good option here. I, I have to imagine there are people out there who enjoy their commute. I don't know who they are. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not me. Well... I, I will say it's a little less stressful when you don't have to drive. I I live now in New York City. I you know probably the best public transit situation in the United States. It's a thirty minute train ride for me to my job. There's a little walking most days. Entirely tolerable. I don't mind it at all. But even within New York City, there are I know people whose commutes are like an hour long because they're on the wrong side of the city or. They're working in one of the rare places that just isn't very accessible by subway. Um, you know, so even in cities where public transit is robust, there are gaps in that. And this is something that ties into not just the commercial real estate issue, but uh, real estate for where people live. Because when people want to live close to where they work, it's driving up apartment prices. And this becomes an issue that is much larger than we can talk about in the space of an hour. But, you know, one thing that's been noted is that due to the pandemic and because a lot of people are still working from home, uh, public transit systems are facing a budget crunch because nobody's going through the turnstiles. Nobody's paying for subway tickets. But I think in New York City, like the rates are still only like 70% of pre-pandemic levels as far as how many people are riding the subway each day. And that's 30% of revenue that just isn't there for a system that still is 100% of the same size. It, th- there's the risk of a spiral here, you know, if you can't fill those gaps somehow. And, you know, that would be bad if working from home costs everybody public transit. You know, obviously work from home, still good. The revenue should be made up some other way. Uh, here in New York, they're talking about like a, effectively a toll to enter certain parts of Manhattan. Again, much broader issue, but could possibly stop paying cops to just chew gum in subway stations and do nothing. Yeah, because I mean, ostensibly they are there to keep people from avoiding paying fares, but they don't really do that. And when they do, it's much more violent and expensive it's not good when they do yeah Uh, so like there's again a lot we could discuss here we're trying to keep this an episode about work from home um (laughs) perhaps to sort of cap this conversation we should take a break here and then come back after a break to talk about some of the other aspects of all of this we'll be back (laughs) 
You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Uh, As we ended the last segment about work from home, uh, I was trying to uh, keep this episode's scope from spiraling out of our control and into basically every aspect of American society. But as we were discussing during that break, we realized... Actually, there's not really a way to discuss this one topic in a vacuum because it touches on so many other things. We talked about commuting earlier. And, you know, one thing that didn't get brought up was how during the pandemic and in the couple of years uh, now, uh, since 2020, a lot of people moved. They, instead of living in a downtown area where they were paying excessive rent in order to live close to the place where they work, they decided they would move to some place where it's cheaper and work from home and, you know, pocket the savings, which in turn has resulted in a few companies publicly, like making a point of paying their work from home employees less. And even in that survey, I mentioned in the last segment, there was uh, workers, I think a quote saying they'd take a, 5% pay cut on average in order to keep working from home. You know, for a lot of people, that's a trade they're willing to make. I'm already spiraling in a lot of different directions at once. Which direction should we take this? Well, we can stick with that. Um, There's an article here from, uh, well, I have it from wavy.com. I assume that's supposed to be W-A-V-Y. It's a station call sign. It's called, uh, it, it's from just a few days ago. It's pay cut to work from home, some employers marketing option to compensate for lower wages. And actually, I, I can't believe I'm, I'm saying this, but you've got a small business owner calling other businesses unethical for doing this because it actually isn't even clear that this is a legal thing that you can do. Pay... If, if two employees are doing the same job, it's not clear that it's legal for you to pay one less because they're not commuting. So and his problem is just that he's being undercut. Maybe, but, well, hold up. First of all, it's she, girl boss. It's Sherry or Cherie, not sure, director of Shannon Strategies in Portsmouth, Virginia. And she says at one point, um, here we go. For employers to say because you now work from home that they are allowed to pay you less because they value you less, I think that's exploitative. I think that's awful. I encourage more business owners who are in a position like myself to actually be vocal about that because that is unethical. We should not be doing that. And yeah, probably just annoyed that her trying to be um trying to pay her employees the same regardless. She says that it also helps with recruiting. She can get a wider pool of talent if she's wanting to look for people who want to work from home. So yeah, she might be annoyed for purely business reasons, but it's weird that it it's weird to even break kayfabe on that, to be willing to say, yeah, actually it, it's, it's kind of messed up that employers are willing to do that. And uh, seriously, workers who said they take a pay cut to work from, what are you even doing? Why would you admit to that? 
What is wrong with you? You can't uh, start negotiations from that point. You've got to start with yeah. actually pay me more. There's uh, extra stress of, here. Yeah, all of those workers are Democratic Congress people. Yeah, but but like working from home, you're you're using your own utilities and resources. You're you know paying your own rent to house yourself during your working hours. Like there there are costs associated with um, working from home. It's just that companies don't see it as that. They see it their cost savings, and therefore, I, I don't know. It's a very convoluted thought process to say that people who work from home should be paid less. Uh, than people who commute. Um, but that's what you would expect from businesses in general who are going to use any kind of convoluted trick in the book to pay pe- people less than they should mm-hmm. just because they can't. And who, and, and business people in any sector, you know, the, the business minded people, I guess I should say, they can't handle anything not being a trade off. Like if they give you something, they need to get something back for it, especially now that we've raised the. That was always present, but now we've raised a class of uh, shut business people that don't think of workers uh, or not only don't think of workers as people, but haven't had to ever. They don't even have to pretend to. So now it's, oh, you want to work from home? Cool. Here's, uh, you know, I'll I'll be taking 5% of your pay in exchange for that. It it doesn't matter that you might be just as productive. It doesn't matter that um, there's really no reason to, to change that, but it's just, yep, I can pocket that difference. Until, you know, the Supreme Court lets me take 20% instead. Because I can't wait to see what friend of the show, Neil Gorsuch, would have to say about this. It's just an article I brought up from November 2020. So this is something that's been ongoing for a while. Uh, Vintage. uh, Yeah. It notes that uh, Facebook and Twitter have said that they will cut the pay of employees who choose to relocate away from their head offices in the pricey San Francisco Bay Area. Payments platform Stripe said it will offer employees $20,000 to help with moving costs, but then cut pay by 10%. Software maker VMware said it could reduce relocating staff salaries by up to 18%. All of this like, is just a form of arbitrage on the costs of rent just trying to see what workers will take now that they're paying less in rent in theory. Um, It's very, because beforehand it was never assumed that one's pay was tied to one's cost of living. Like that has never been part of the calculation in uh, the history of all of this, you know, the theory goes that you are paid based on your contribution to the company and, you know, how much revenue you help them bring in. So for all of a sudden companies to be concerned about the ways in which, uh, you know, your cost of living is reflected in your salary. I mean, it's very transparent and very silly and workers should not have. I I think that, I, I don't know that that assumption is entirely true because none of us work in a industry that is located in a San Francisco or tech or other like West Coast Silicon Valley like things where cost of living, I would argue, is very much so present in the salary that you're getting. Like your your six figure salary is in part because of the cost of living associated there. So we here don't have that kind of assumption in 
in the wages that we get because we aren't to a large part white collar workers. So well, that's fair, know. but also there are a lot of people in San Francisco who are getting paid minimum wage and nevertheless right, they're not white workers. live and work in San Francisco. Yeah, they're not white collar workers. These are not like tech people working for Facebook and everything where the salary that they're given is part of the cost of living of the cities that they live in. Um, for the rest of us who actually have to worry about cost of living, that's not something that's true. Um, so like they're, the call center people that work for Amazon, um, their cost of living is not factored into their wage rate. To them, Amazon wants them to work from home for their savings. Um, but th- those are not in the same category as the like people writing code for Amazon. Which uh, I don't think we've uh, mentioned that article on yeah, here yet. True. So just yeah. to give listeners some uh, clarity <laughs> as to what Lou is talking about. Um, <laughs> there's a headline from this past week. Uh, Amazon is reportedly looking to... See, I've got an ad that's right in the middle of the headline here. Uh, I got it. Reportedly encouraging their U.S. call center employees to work from home indefinitely so they can eventually close their offices. Um, this is originally from Bloomberg, and then Insider got a hold of it. I I hate this. Bloomberg's doing all the heavy lifting on today's show. Oh, I don't like thanks, that. Uh, when when Bloomberg is doing all the heavy lifting, uh, you you messed up. Yeah. At any rate, I so Amazon is doing this because my suspicion is I can't verify this, but because they own these call centers. So for them, it is savings, or at the very least, their rent must be high enough that they can say, well, make that somebody else's problem. We don't want to deal with it. You know, they're not subject to the same pressures as all of these other real estate lobbies. Also, because this is Jeff Bezos we're talking about. And they're actually getting back to what you said, Ryan, about people moving. Amazon is looking at recruiting um, across a wider swath of people because then they can hire people who don't live near these call centers. And that might help in an industry that has high turnover, because as we've talked about on this very show, working in a call center sucks. And this way they can find people for whom a job that sucks, but is a job that you can do from home is the only option. They can find people who haven't done the sucky job before and don't know how bad it sucks. Because, I mean, that's a broader issue that Amazon is facing with their high turnover uh, business model and warehouses. You know, they are, um, perhaps we've discussed this on the show before, but they've had like an internal memo laying out how they're afraid that like they're going to run out of workers to exploit within five years if they keep this up because, you know, people work for Amazon for about a year and then decide that they don't want to work for Amazon anymore. Uh, and oh, eventually you run out of other people's uh, bodies. Amazon is trying to get to the bottom of that. Like they're trying to see how fast, maybe that's what Amazon is. It's just like this big psychological experiment to see how fast they can run through an entire country's worth of workforce uh, before they actually exploitation have speed run. Yeah, exactly. Any percent, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that the big issue behind or, or the big I- illegality 
behind paying people who want to move to a different point isn't really a cost of living issue, um, or at least they're trying to frame it as a cost of living issue, but it's really a fair pay issue. Um, the the Lily Ledbetter is the, the person I keep thinking of with, with this happens, where um, for so decades and decades, um, companies wanted to pay men more than women because the cost of living for a breadwinner in the house, traditionally men, was higher. So they came up with all of these convoluted reasons why somebody who has to make more in order to be the breadwinner or whatever, um, they should be paid more. So this isn't fair pay for these workers and, and making people who want to work remotely and live in cheaper areas is just not true. I don't know if that's making sense or not, or if I'm doing enough of a follow through, but it's not a cost of living issue. It's a fair pay issue. I think it's uh, you bringing up that uh, gender disparity makes for a useful segue into this uh, next article that we have in front of us. Uh, again, also just from the past week, from September 26th, uh, by Ray Marcano and um, I think originally the Grio. Um, there's a, and it talks about a study by the Economic Policy Institute, which notes that you know, the opportunity to work from home is unequally available to American workers. Um, quoting from the article, fewer black workers have the flexibility to do their jobs at home because they are overly represented in no wage jobs that require going to a work site. There are any number of historic reasons for why that is the case. I think if you're a listener of this show, you can sort of piece together in your head, you know, why that makes sense, why that is the case. And obviously it shouldn't be, but it is, uh, you know, remote work didn't just plop down onto the state of the American workforce in a vacuum. It plopped down onto the American workforce as it existed as something that is, you know, has huge inequities and huge uh, disparities and how workers of certain groups, uh, racial, gender, and otherwise are treated. Um, and so inevitably to the extent that work from home is a luxury, and we have talked about it on this episode as though it is one, it's a luxury that goes to the sorts of people who typically get luxuries. Yeah. Which in America is, you know, white dudes like myself. There, there's a study cited here from the, pardon me, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, so uh, the study period is May through July 2021, which is, you know, it may have been what they had the option to to analyze, but it's certainly kind of a weird period in the pandemic. But it's 38.3% uh, of Asian workers, 23.7% of white workers, 18.6% of black and 13.9% of Hispanic workers, and that the odds of uh, black workers teleworking were 35% lower than white workers. Again, this just confirms kind of the perception of things like teleworking of hybrid arrangements of all of that it it basically confirms what we already thought about it who gets to do this who gets to take advantage of these things and one thing that i think is pretty regrettable is that it's made it very easy to create those progressive sounding arguments for why it's a good thing that everybody should be shunted back into an office um Again, there are jobs that you just cannot do. Like there's 
just no way, for example, to be a home health aide over Zoom. If there were, we would have figured out how to do it already because this is the U.S. You know, everything is how do we save on labor costs? That's literally what this country runs on. It is not Duncan. We've got... (laughs) In terms of things like food service, in terms of things like education and so on, there is no way to do these jobs without having a real live human being in front of you to do them. So when you overrepresent a part of the population in those jobs, that's just going to happen. And we know what happened to workers who were in person during the pandemic. We know that they were yelled at and abused. We know that they were shot at and stabbed and physically attacked and harassed in all sorts of ways. And we know that they got sick and died at alarming rates. The most dangerous profession over the last couple of years in the United States was not cop and it wasn't lumberjack and it wasn't construction worker. It was being a line cook because you work in close proximity to other people Uh, You're not likely to be unionized. You are likely to be in one of these groups that is overrepresented among low-wage jobs. And if you're a line cook, you tend to work with bosses that consider you marginally more important to the business than like a spider on the wall. And given that, you know, they don't treat those spiders very well, I think you see where this is going. The end result of all of this is that it has been very easy to talk about these kinds of things as though the only people doing it are billionaires and they're only doing it because they're lazy. And that has paradoxically made the attacks of the right wing on people like teachers, the whole like, well, teachers just don't want to go into schools and things like that. Um, Very, very easy to spread. Not that there aren't other people who are responsible for that, but it's become very easy to do that because we've created this division between like, what is a real job and what isn't. And, Whereas what we should be talking about is why is a segment of the population being shunted into these jobs that don't have this option? Why are they overrepresented and then not given adequate safety measures? That is, um, you know, as, as somebody who's expecting to not have access to this luxury, I think that's a real conversation you need to have. Why is now that we're returning to normal, quote unquote, and the pandemic is over, 72 point air quotes, what are we actually going to do about this? Because it's not going to be the last one. And are we going to have systems in place to make sure that black and Hispanic workers aren't the ones mainly exposed to the vagaries of American customer service, which might be one of the closest things to hell on earth that exists? You talked about the sort of effort to paint, you know, people who work on a keyboard as a shorthand as, you know, somehow not real workers. And I think that ties into a broader effort at, you know, defining what the working class is. You know, this is something that has been going on since well before the pandemic. The idea that actually working class means you drive a Ford F-150 And if you are a barista for Starbucks, you are not working class. You have one too many hair colors, you know, to qualify. (laughs) Sorry, that's very good. You know, it's the idea that working class is 
effectively a cultural signifier rather than something that describes your relationship to the work you do and how you make your money. You know, we here on this show have a different definition. You know, we say that if there's somebody above you, you know, giving you a paycheck in exchange for your time and your labor, you're part of the working class. Even if you are working at an office for Facebook or, you know, working on a garbage truck, you know, that's your position in society. Obviously, that's not a definition that helps if you're, I don't know, Marco Rubio or Rick Scott and trying to paint the Democratic Party as the party of elitists and the party of, you know, the wealthy. Perhaps that's a good point on which to end this segment. Um, When we come back, we'll try to wrap all this up in a positive way. We haven't determined what that way will be yet, but we'll try. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Working from home or homely working? <laughs> and Lou. Hey, guys. Uh, Lou is currently drowning under her cat at the moment. Um, which That is the worst possible way you could have phrased that. It, it, the cat seems to be almost overwhelming uh, in its is. presence. She's so sweet. I don't know if you can hear her purring, but she is just no. all over me. And so sweet. We were trying to think of how to uh, tie this in with the subject of today's show, which has been working from home. And I I think it's worth saying that you can have more time with your cat if you're working from home. You can have more time with uh, whatever furry creatures might live in your house um, if you're working from home. (laughs) Can't confirm. Dogs, roommates, whatever. More furry creatures. Small toddlers. <laughs> um, Small toddlers. Noted furry creatures. Absolutely. They can be. If they haven't uh, bathed in enough. a while, yeah. So this is the part of the show where we try to look forward towards the future and see how it can be better. And I think one of the things we touched on in uh, thinking about what how to make this all better is the idea that in order to make this situation equitable because there are some jobs that just can't be done over a computer screen. They can't be done remotely. Effort has to be made in order to make those jobs more tolerable, make those jobs better. Um, you know, my idea towards that was to make commuting less miserable to, you know, which would entail in most American cities actually committing towards public transit instead of, building another lane of highway and you know in rochester noah you like this uh putting more effort into plowing the roads and you know making sure that gets done in a timely fashion thank you for being brave enough to finally say it (laughs) i'm glad this is gaining steam yes um but you know famously america is one of the more car-centric countries on the planet uh 
the nature of our geography has, and frankly, the influence of car companies on our politics has created a status quo where most people are commuting to work by car. They are in situations where public transit, if it exists, is poorly funded and not really helpful to them. And it's viewed in many cases as, you know, the thing the poors use and thus the thing middle class respectable people should be trying to avoid. It will take a lot of work to undo that, to actually commit to creating a world where the public transit is public. It's accessible to everybody, but it's work that has to be done in order to undo the mess that we're all in. Yeah. From from personal experience, I can tell you, we live near a bus stop and I've multiple times considered, I, in terms of pure distance, I don't work that far away from home. I do live farther away than the five miles. That's like the like the study range, I guess. That that seems to be a big circle that they like to draw. But I don't live that far away. And I've and I mentioned earlier that my commuting time is 17 minutes. By public transit, it's an hour and a half. And so if it were even, and I'm gonna be clear here, it wouldn't have to just be 20 minutes. If it were 45 minutes, I would probably take the bus to work every day. I, I've done it before. I have very much enjoyed not having to drive on my own down a bunch of unplowed roads. But I have to because the difference is so stark. So I don't really get much of a choice in that regard. That's the problem. Investing in investing in public transit and especially in mid-sized cities, especially outside of, you know, New York City, Seattle, San Francisco, that kind of thing is really difficult because basically nobody is in favor of that. There is no entrenched interest. There's no public transit lobby in the United States trying to make that happen. You're more likely to get a bunch of people who say you should walk to work or bike to work than you're going to get somebody who's like, you know what's awesome? Trains and buses. Now, all three of us, I think, are are in that corner, but we're- Pro train, pro bus. That's right. Seattle had a cool monorail when I was there. That was neat. Mm -hmm. It only makes one stop. Yeah. And that's the thing. Again, we have decided to stick by a very bad status quo, then even explore an alternative. I know that when my my first year teaching, I I used to take the bus because it was just down the street. And honestly, from a transportation perspective, that and the two years that I got to walk were the best. It's, you know, I, it talking about healthcare, because I didn't have to drive myself, I would say if I can make it out of the door, if I feel healthy enough to make it out of the door, I will work. And that meant my employer had to call fewer substitutes in for me. Now, I'm much more likely to say, well, I can't get behind the wheel, so I'm not going in. And from and I know that, I again, I'm not the only person saying this. So if you add all of that up, you're getting a bunch of people who are you know, not that I think you should go into work sick, obviously, but you're getting a whole bunch of people who maybe are making decisions more based on the fact that they have to get there somehow than they are on, you know, what they feel they can do at the office. And then there was a a second thing I wanted to mention, which is that uh, it struck me that during that last segment, we were talking about people complaining about jobs that can be done remotely. And essentially what they're ultimately saying is, 
I work hard. Why don't you have to work hard? That is ultimately what the what the complaint is, the frustration is. And I think a lot of this issue could be solved if we just made everybody else's job suck less too. You know, commuting is very specific to this, but I do think it's underrated how much the ease with which the, the working class can be divided against itself is because if you have a job that you have to do in person, that job tends to be pretty bad. And maybe if you had to work fewer hours at that so you could have time with your cat or your dog or your roommate or your small toddler, then maybe you wouldn't be as likely to sell out other workers and complain about them because you would feel like you're less out of that boat. And instead, you know, this this whole work from home issue has been treated as a way to set us all on edge against each other yet again. And people fall for it because American workers generally speaking, unless they're very politically educated, love nothing more than selling each other out. I will say, while y'all were having a very productive conversation about commuting, um, the cat just chewed almost all the way through my headphones uh, while still trying to snuggle with me. So, you know, there are pros and cons to working at home. And I just want to say, like, you got to be able to be comfortable with where you are and you know, it's not for everyone. That's why we have different jobs. It's it's impossible to say whether it's bad or not. That, that's the official line of punching out. And uh, th- that's really the takeaway you should uh, leave this episode with. Um, you know, we couldn't reach a conclusion on this topic, but maybe uh, next time we will. Um, for this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.